0: So the question here that we are really asking, what's the value of going out to see live theater? Um, Most of us have at home some incredibly high resolution uh, television. Uh, Why don't we just stay at home and have the same rich perceptual experience? Why do we pay all this money to go out, be surrounded by strangers and so on? What's that value of live performance? This is the voice of Daniel Richardson. I'm a professor in experimental psychology at University College London.
1: We spoke over Zoom from opposite ends of the earth and his research involves putting sensors on people that measure heart rate, body temperature and your electrodermal
0: activity, your skin conductance.
1: And he has this graph that charts the heart rates of audience members as a story. In this case, the musical Dreamgirls plays out on stage in front of them.
0: He said, well, why are there peaks and troughs at the same moment here? Well, that's the story, that's the narrative. That big peak right in the middle, that's when she first gets uh, thrown out of the band when they have the huge breakup and the Dream Girl's band disbands. Then there's another peak when she gets back together with her husband Then there's a final peak at the end. These are story points that are synchronizing the heart rates of people, watching it live in the theater. Whether you notice it or not, our heartbeats, Dr. Richardson and his colleagues
1: found, beat along to the drama we watch speeding up as we're excited and
0: slowing down as we are in suspense. So if something is really really re-engaging, it can also lower your heart rate because you're so focused on something, we even call it a heart-stopping moment. The effect on our
1: cardiovascular system during a play is so significant, it's equivalent to 30 minutes of actual exercise. And Dr. Richardson's team tested the same phenomenon with audiences watching a film and found that they are significantly less stimulating. There's something about a live performance that gets an audience's hearts pounding and pounding together.
0: And what we found is that heart rate synchrony, literally hearts beating in time with each other, was much greater in the live theater. And in terms of psychology, there just seems something irreplaceable about that feeling of social connection with people around you, that being not just an emotion that you have, but that being a shared emotion.
1: On this episode of Here Arizona's state-of-the-art series, the unique role that live performance, being in the same room with audience members and artists, has in our lives and our society, and the near crippling challenge that COVID-19 has posed to the people and organizations dedicated to bringing us this gift. The pandemic has almost completely deprived us of going in-person to concerts and plays. What is still unclear is how available they will be to us once the threat of the virus subsides.
2: How are you? Good.
1: How are you? Oh, cool. Yeah. I'm,
2: uh, I'm D, okay.
1: seat 9. I'm bundled up on a Wednesday night, getting my temperature checked and being escorted to my seat in front of the Phoenix Theater Company's newly built outdoor stage in the courtyard of the United Methodist Church in downtown Phoenix.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Phoenix Theater Company. Thank you so much for experiencing theater under the stars in this very special season.
1: Before the actors take the stage for Murder for Two, a murder mystery comedy with only three actors, a special video announcement plays. It reminds me of Dr. Richardson's research.
3: Now more than ever, theater can offer the hope and togetherness that we all crave. We counter the isolation and division of our times with messages of unity, strength, compassion, and love. The experience of live theater remains one of the most- Yeah, it's beyond excited. Um, I think that it's one of those emotional things.
1: This is Seth Tucker, one of the stars of the show. He spoke with me just hours before it started, and he told me this opening night means a lot more than most.
3: So it means that light at the end of the tunnel. Like, it means
1: hope. Seth was born and raised in Arizona, but spent much of the last decade acting in waiting
3: tables in New York City. And he's happy to be back. It's just there's so much noise in New York, so much being created, whereas in Arizona, they are hungry for it. There's so much opportunity.
1: But there's been almost no live performance opportunities here in the past year. This opening day is so special because it is the very first show in Arizona since spring 2020 to be sanctioned by Actors' Equity Association, a union that represents more than 50,000 theater actors and stage managers. Only 20 theaters in the US have earned this designation and Phoenix Theater Company had to work really hard for it. They have a dedicated COVID safety officer. The cast has tested two or three times a week. They created a whole new outdoor stage, but all of these precautions are rare. A representative from the union told me that in the past year, their members have lost
3: 90% of their work. It's hard. No one was able to do the thing that they love. We're feeling for each other. We're feeling for what's happening. We're feeling that we can't heal with storytelling, which is what we've always used, you know?
1: And of course, it's not just the actors that can't heal with storytelling. As our country becomes more and more anxious and divided, we, the audience, haven't had events to bring us together.
3: Because of one lousy dead body? (laughs) We take an audience on the journey of people whose perspectives they don't know yet, or they've never experienced. And by the end, you feel better. You feel stronger. You feel more loved. You feel more understood. You understand people better than you did before. I read.
4: Ladies and gentlemen, we hope you enjoyed your evening under the stars. Please remain in your seats and ushers will be around.
1: I talked to people in the audience about how it felt to be back out at a live theater performance.
0: And there's just nothing like the theater. You can go to a movie, but it's... This is unique.
4: They keep you engaged, you know, and it gives you something to talk about with the people that you go with. And it's not just like watching a TV show or watching a movie where you just sit in silence. It's,
5: yeah, I mean, just the ability to get out and have something that's kind of a neutral ground for us to, you know... Share and enjoy.
6: During, during the last year, we've really gotten away from, uh, from seeing who our neighbors are and who the other people are. Events like this bring people out and they bring people together. And then we can start talking about our common thoughts and, and our differences. And, and yeah, it's absolutely critical.
1: During the pandemic, Seth started a company called Acting Up Series, which produces virtual performances, something lots of theaters have offered while in-person plays have been risky. He said it's been a big success bringing drama to new audiences online, and he plans to continue it even after theaters resume traditional performances. But it raises a debate some are now having. Does watching a play on a screen have the same effect as seeing it live?
6: I I, I simplify kind of both sides of that because like, yeah, like technology changes and having shows live on shows on that are available online is a good idea. But it's like, you just lose that immediacy. And uh, it creates this problem where it's like theater, the immediacy of it, the physicality of it is its top selling point.
1: Ashley Naftool is a playwright and associate artistic director at Space 55, a local nonprofit theater. He said when you make a virtual performance to watch on Zoom or YouTube, you're essentially competing against people playing video games or streaming Netflix or Hulu. And an overload of on demand at home entertainment.
6: I, I do think it breeds a certain passivity, like with streaming. Like the convenience of streaming is fantastic. But the fact of the matter is, like, it does create this idea of, like, oh, you know, it's nothing's urgent. I can see it whenever, it's gonna, whenever I want. It's always going to be there. And I think there's something really beautiful about art that's impermanent, like performance art, a concert, uh, going to a dance night, theater, because there are these physical in the moment experiences where if you don't go, you miss out. And you can't replicate them.
1: When you're at a show in person, you have to be engaged and paying attention. You can't pause and check your phone. And also, when you're at home picking your own shows, we're kind of in our own little bubbles with algorithms feeding us our own stream of familiar content. It doesn't exactly encourage you to explore new things and new ideas.
6: American society has very narcissistic tendencies. Uh, it's very, very individualistic, very me, me, me. What I want matters more than what anybody else wants. And I kind of think... Home entertainment just feeds that in a lot of ways. It becomes more of give me content and I will consume it how I want.
1: Ashley is a lifelong Phoenician, but he hasn't always been into theater. I wasn't like a
6: drama kid. Like I took like one uh, theater class in high school and I absolutely loathed it. I Mm. hated it.
1: When he discovered Space 55 and other smaller theaters in town when he was older, they were nothing like the theater he studied in high school. He remembers one performance at Space 55 especially well.
6: There's like this really great punky and outrageous play where they had um, a king sitting on a toilet as his throne, they had trash strewn across the floor, and like the New York dolls playing over the speakers. So I'm like, okay, this place feels like a place I want to come back to. The
1: theater is near Grand Avenue and 19th Avenue.
6: House inside a warehouse owned by Michael Levine, who does like a, a machine shop like in the front of the building, and we have like a space towards the back. If you go in the lobby... A uh, Michael houses some of the stuff that he makes, like from his art project. And there's like a there's like a Batmobile in there, and a, a giant like wrought iron shark.
1: Ashley said, "Space 55 is a theater for people who aren't theater people. They welcome outsiders.
6: I found my home there." Because, yeah, I had no background as an actor or or as a playwright at all. But it was a place where because I I had enthusiasm and, and like, I I wanted to work, like, they gave me a chance to do stuff there.
1: Places like Space 55 not only bring audiences together to watch shows, they're community
6: centers for artists. Homes, as Ashley put it. I'm optimistic that that, that, um, the stuff that we lost is temporary because, again, you know, like, the live performance has survived the Black Death, and it survived the Spanish Flu, and it survived multiple world wars. Ashley
1: said he's not so worried about the larger theaters with strong donor bases, like the Phoenix Theater Company. And he said Space 55 is lucky. They got some grants and will remain in their quirky warehouse space. But he's concerned about some of the other, smaller theaters in town.
6: The bigger fear I have is that right, a lot of places have to close and probably will not be able to reopen once the pandemic ends. You know, it's... The culture needs places.
0: When I was a boy, I wished I could fly. Me too. So did I. Out the window and over the trees. High as the cloud,
3: lighter than air.
1: This is the trailer for the Brelby Theatre Company's 2017 production, Peter and the Star Catcher.
5: It's like a, a prequel to the Peter Pan story, and it's super whimsical. So many things about it were just kind of perfect and, and a magical thing, and... Yeah, we were just really proud of that show.
0: It always happens. Nothing is forever.
5: That's the rule. Everything ends. And so our story begins.
1: Shelby Matisic and her husband Brian started Brelby in 2009. She said Peter and the Starcatcher is their favorite play, and they performed it in their own theater housed in a historic building in downtown Glendale.
5: I mean, there have been some pretty special shows and memories that have happened in that building.
1: But with no live plays and no ticket sales during the pandemic, they've had to put the building up for sale.
5: So I think there's definitely a like a little bit of a melancholy sense about it, a little sentimental about saying goodbye to it.
1: She said the past year's obviously been tough financially on her and the professional actors she knows, but they've lost more than money.
5: But there's also something about... You know, being an artist and and getting satisfaction and fulfillment from creating art and then having your particular genre of art ripped away from you that leaves you feeling like empty and kind of hopeless.
1: Shelby and Brian met as students at NAU in Flagstaff and when they graduated, decided to start their own theater company together.
5: Brian and Shelby makes Brelby. Um,
1: And so they built Brelby from nothing starting with touring shows across the state and eventually landing in Glendale.
5: Um, But yeah those first couple years we were rehearsing in parking lots and in backyards and we built sets in our driveway and had piles of costumes stored in guest rooms Um, but we were resilient and we kept going and um, managed to really kind of carve out a home down here.
1: They put on original shows written by local artists, including one based on an NPR story about how much it would cost to actually buy the 12 Days of Christmas gifts.
5: $300,000 or something like that.
1: And they built an audience and community, surviving mostly on ticket sales. One of their actors even helped them with the cost of moving into the historic building.
5: I don't know, I think by working hard and trying to be kind to our our artists and our audience that it's it's paid off by people wanting
1: to give back. They'll keep putting on live shows wherever they can, once it's safe, but now they're pivoting more to video production and hoping to get into making commercials. Whatever they can do to keep creating and employing local artists. Of course, they'd love to return to the stage now, but it's just too costly for an organization like theirs.
5: Groups like the Herberger and Phoenix Theater, they've been able to build beautiful outdoor stages and they have the seating you know socially distanced and spread out and everyone's masked and sanitized but it's difficult because you know there are there are dozens of small venues in town that just don't have the resources they don't have the funding to put together an outdoor stage so it's just not an option and so in a way it's almost (laughs) it's almost creating a divide amongst the producers, too.
1: So, after I talked to the actors' union representative, he sent me a link to a webpage with a list of a few theaters, including the Phoenix Theatre Company, that they'd approved for live performances. But above that list was a very different one. It was theaters that could no longer hire union employees because they had, quote, abandoned their commitment to actors' equity workplace safety rules and, quote, watered down their health and safety standards. There was even a link by each theater on the list that would generate an email automatically that you could send them telling them how disappointed you were. Rogue Theater in Tucson was on that list, so I called them.
2: I'm Cynthia Meyer, and I'm the managing and associate artistic director of the Rogue Theater in Tucson, Arizona.
1: Cynthia explained her side of the story.
2: For us, it was a really hard decision to make. I mean, essentially, our choices were to shut down and do some Zoom performances, um, lose our season ticket holders, or leave the Union, continue doing what we are doing in, in the safest way we possibly can, and continue to offer theater for the community.
1: Since September, they've been doing performances for a very limited crowd and sometimes no audience when cases surge. Most people watch videos of the show online. On stage, actors wear masks and don't even speak live. Their dialogue is pre-recorded. Everyone is tested once a week. She said they've had two cases in the crew, so they shut down for a bit and there was no virus spread within the theater. It's a system they've come up with to continue to employ about 100 artists throughout the year. And of course, only those who feel comfortable and safe perform.
2: And we've, you know, got tons of safety uh, protocols in place. And equity was very, very difficult to work with. And for them to put on their website that we care more about our profits than we care about the safety of uh, the our actors or our community is just inflammatory. Um, it's... It's really, it's not true. (laughs) Profits, you know, we're a a, a not-for-profit theater. We don't have profits.
1: A union representative told me Rogue Theater can work with union actors in the future if they get a safety plan approved, but for now, they cannot. But Cynthia is still paying the wages the union has established. She said they've already had a couple union actors perform, and now they may have to leave the union. Another performer made a difficult decision to stay in the union and not act at rogue theater. Now, Cynthia said he's working an arguably more dangerous job at a bar. She said it was a really tough decision to split with the union, but over 50% of their income comes from ticket sales, and they needed the live shows on stage to survive. Like Brelby, they're also in a historic building, an old 1930s YWCA in Tucson they totally remodeled, and they didn't want to lose
2: it rent is um you know six, more than $6000 a month it's um it's an expensive um it's an expensive building um and there's there's no way that we could have continued to pay that rent
1: Cynthia is 64 years old and she's been doing theater all her life
2: the first play that i i wrote that was completely new for me was in 4th grade when I wrote a play about a group of uh, kids on Mars who were dressing up as human beings for Halloween. (laughs) That's what I remember. (laughs) And I love um, storytelling and I um, love working with it with a group of people. Um, And then the larger uh, group of the audience too is, is just, is a beautiful way to spend one's life.
1: She helped start the Rogue Theater in Tucson in 2005, and she said it has become a special place in the community, and they just couldn't give it up because of the union conflict.
2: You know, the live theater in many ways is a, a community center. Sometimes it feels almost like a church um, for for people to come together and experience stories together. And I, I think that's what we've come to, to mean in Tucson to a lot of people.
1: One study by Candid, a philanthropy research firm, found that as many as 40% of the nonprofit organizations in the U.S. could shut down due to the pandemic. The small ones like Brelby and Rogue Theater are scratching and clawing to survive, but even the larger, more established ones are hurting.
7: So um, Arizona Theatre Company is the state theater of Arizona. We're in our 54th
1: season. Sean Daniels is the artistic director of the Arizona Theatre Company.
7: We provide world-class entertainment that is a mix of the best artists working in the country today, working with local Arizona artists in Tucson and in Phoenix. Every show that we do starts in one city and goes to the
1: other. Since the pandemic started, the Arizona Theatre Company has been offering virtual plays and podcasts online and are actually reaching a much larger audience now than ever, but the loss of ticket sales has been a big blow.
7: It's a million dollar, if not two million dollar impact just in terms of revenue that we would have been bringing in through the door, you know, just in terms of ticket sales.
1: The theater's managing director, Jerry Wright, told me they've had to scale back in a big way to stay alive.
8: So when when the pandemic hit, I think, it, what was it, Sean, like 105? We had 105 employees um, and over, over time, well, let me just... We're at 31 employees right now.
1: Like Brelby Theater, they had to sell an historic building they owned. It wasn't where they performed. It was an administrative building. But still, they said it was sad. And, of course, ticket sales isn't the only loss without live performances.
7: You know, like, one of my actual favorite things about going to the theater is when half the audience laughs at a joke. If you're just at home in your own bubble, you never experience things outside of your either sense of humor or political stratosphere or, you know, personal identity politics. And suddenly you have to go and realize like, oh, that that's a joke for the poor people in the audience. Or that's a joke for Tucson or that's a joke for Phoenix. And it's like, oh, it it kind of forces you like you have to experience something in the room with other people. And. I can tell you in a room of 700 people, like very few of them agree on everything. And so you begin, you begin to learn like, oh, everybody has a different set of experiences.
1: Who knows what new businesses will spring up in all the historic buildings around the country that theaters are selling, but it's easy to see why people are worried for the future of live performance. What they offer, a place for artists to express themselves and make a living and a place for people to come together and learn from each other is unique and not easy to find elsewhere.
7: And it's really up to the communities that are in these cities, like, what, what will live and what will still be there when we come out of it. Does Arizona mm-hmm. want world-class theater? Does it feel like its people deserve it?
1: This is a YouTube performance of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony by the Phoenix Symphony, an organization even older than the Arizona Theater Company. This next season, they'll be celebrating their 75th anniversary, but this past year has been one unlike any other for the symphony. They all recorded their parts for this piece individually in their living rooms, bedrooms, and backyards.
8: I mean, it's been a fairly traumatic experience, you know, this career that involves you know, not just being together as an ensemble, but performing for audiences. I mean, our whole medium is an event. It's a public gathering event. And so now to have that just, you know, completely taken away,
1: I mean, it's a real shock to the system. Viviana Completo-Wilson has played the flute with the Phoenix Symphony since 2006. And since March 2020, there have been no full symphony concerts, and all 64 of its musicians have been furloughed forced to collect unemployment and do things like give online lessons for extra cash.
8: We've got, you know, couples within the orchestra that have young families, you know, and and so for some people it's meant having to, you know, change their housing situations, you know, or um, really downsize. Um, so it's... It's, it's heartbreaking to see those things happen.
1: The musicians started a GoFundMe to help some of their members struggling financially. And to date, they've raised over $25,000. Viviana says they're resilient. They'll make it through and play at Symphony Hall again, but... The bigger concern is just
8: not so much that people won't want to be in the arts, um, but that it will just not be as available, you know, because depending on how our medium has to transform as we navigate.
1: She said it may be hard for them to perform as a full symphony for a while. They are a crowd themselves, after all. Her worry is the same as Ashley's, that there just won't be as much live art for people on the other side of the pandemic.
4: Uh, In the performing arts industry, we always face an uphill battle when it comes to sustainability. covid clearly exacerbated that situation
1: that's the symphony's president and ceo suzanne wilson
4: we've always had an eye on preserving this Mm -hmm. iconic institution you know again we're not alone in this the entire industry is struggling and it's compromised our mission and our ability to connect
1: like so many other arts organizations they've been in survival mode Without ticket sales, they've lost half their income. She sees live music in much the same way Sean Daniels sees live theater.
4: When you come to a concert, that's the shared value, is that live experience and enjoying the music. It's about bringing people together. And so I do believe very firmly um, and am very confident that music and performing arts and that creative experience does have the ability to heal. It's a very powerful way to unify. Music is a powerful way to unify people.
1: Suzanne said the symphony has always been committed to giving this experience to people who can't make it to Symphony Hall. They go out into the city and play at schools and for people
4: at Alzheimer's centers and homeless shelters and hospitals. And this is a tradition of the Phoenix Symphony and a lot of performing arts organizations.
1: And although they haven't been getting the normal paycheck, The symphony's musicians have kept up this tradition of community outreach. They've even set up at hospitals to play for frontline healthcare workers as they change shifts.
8: Um, So we would be out there, you know, in a distanced setting and just kind of like acting as a musical cheerleader um, for the people doing the really up-close and uh, scary work that's necessary. Um, And then there have also been some performances at a local food bank.
1: This is one of those community performances. It's a trio, two flutes and a bassoon, playing Haydn's London Trio outside Nourish Food and Clothing Bank in downtown Phoenix on a chilly February morning. Once they finished, I talked with Brian Gordon, one of the flutists in the trio. We've been playing at the food bank three or four times since since we're furloughed. We thought this is great. The music nourishes the soul and the food bank nourishes these uh, participants. The body. yeah. The body, yeah. <laughs> and as they played, I noticed a woman getting food, listening to the performance, and talking about how she was an artist herself. So as she started biking away, I chased after her to ask her about her art and how the pandemic has treated her.
9: What is it that you want to know from me? I can tell you, i got a long story.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Wanda King is 47 years old and she lives and works in a home with other artists downtown. What kind of stuff do you do?
9: Abstract, um, graffiti art, fine arts. I've been in Los Angeles Museum of Arts. I've been in the Harvey B. Gantt Museum. I've done numerous shows. Um, I also had a clothing line that I I shut it down because I had to sell most of my equipment. The money stopped flowing in, I couldn't keep my website up. The only thing that I'm able to maintain and break it down to you is my rent. It's like I'm living, like, just paying my rent, like, and I come here and I get food.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Like a lot of artists I've talked to for this series, Wanda keeps creating whatever the circumstances, even if it means selling off her possessions and going to a food bank. Her story reminded me of this song written 20 years ago by Gillian Welsh and covered since by tons of other artists. It says,
2: Someone hit the big
1: score. Hit the big score.
3: Figured it out.
1: They figured it out.
3: They were gonna do it anyway. we were
1: gonna do it anyway.
9: Even if it doesn't pay.
1: Even if it doesn't pay.
9: That's it, I just do art. And I've donated a lot of my art to a lot of different organizations. from." Families first, heroes, um, different hospitals, all different types of causes.
1: Artists are gonna do it anyway, even if it doesn't pay. But what remains to be seen is after the pandemic, how much harder will it be for them to get by? And will nonprofit and for-profit arts organizations still have the resources to bring us their work and bring us together? You just listened to an entire podcast episode on the arts. So obviously this issue carries some weight for you. To learn more about the organizations we profiled and the issues they face, visit our website, herearizona.org. That's H-E-A-R-Arizona. Tell all your friends to check us out too. They can search for Here Arizona on their favorite podcast listening app. Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, NPR1, Spotify. And since we're all about empowering our community, we want you to be a part of the conversation. Follow Here Arizona on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This podcast series is made possible by a grant from the Virginia G. Piper Charitable Trust. Here Arizona is a production of the Division of Public Service at Rio Salado College, which includes Sun Sounds, Spot 127, KBOC, and KJZZ. Special thanks to the Phoenix Theater Company, Brelby Theater Company, the Arizona Theater Company, Rogue Theater, and the Phoenix Symphony for their help with this episode. The music in this episode was by me and other local Arizona artists Bob Rabbit and Playboy Man Baby. This episode was produced, written, directed, and hosted by me, Anthony Wallace. Linda Pastore is our executive producer. Hi, this is Scott Bork from Here Arizona Podcasts. Since you're still listening, you're obviously a fan of ours. We want to hear more from you. Visit HearArizona.org and take our listener survey. That's H E A R Arizona.org. Thanks for listening.